Section 23 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Businessmen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eamon Ma. Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Businessmen by Albert Hubbard. Section 23. James J. Hill. Part 2. In his business of supplying cordwood to steamboats, Mr. Hill had a partner, grizzled and gray, by the name of Griggs. Griggs was a typical pioneer. He was always moving on. He bought a little sternwheel steamboat and shipped its boiler and engine across to Breckenridge, where he had the joy of running the first steamboat, the Northwest, on the Red River. Mr. Hill built the second steamboat on the Red River, the Swallow, on the order of Kitson, who bought the boat as soon as she had shown her ability to run. All the metal used in its making, which of course included engine and boiler, was sent across from St. Paul, and if the outfit was gotten out of a wrecked Mississippi sternwheeler, what boots it? Then it was that Kitson, having also bought the Griggs steamboat, was given the title of Commodore, a distinction which he carried through life. By this time several things had happened. One was that Hill had brought up to St. Paul a steamboat load of coal. This coal was mined near Peoria on the Illinois River, floated down to Mississippi, then carried up to St. Paul. To bring coal to this new castle of wood was regarded as deliberate folly. By this time the St. Paul and Pacific had gotten a track laid clear through to Breckenridge, so as to connect with Commodore Kitson's steamboats. When Hill first reached St. Paul there was no agriculture north of that point. The wheat belt still lingered around northern Illinois and southern Wisconsin. The fact that seeds can be acclimated, like men and animals, was still in the ether. The Red River Valley is a wonderfully rich district. Louis Agassiz first mapped it and wrote a most interesting essay on it. Here was a wonderful prehistoric lake, draining to the south through the Minnesota and Mississippi rivers, and thence to the Gulf of Mexico. By a volcanic rise of the land on the southern end, centuries ago the current was turned and ran north, making what we call the Red River, emptying into Lake Winnipeg, which in turn has an outlet into Hudson Bay. Agassiz came up the Mississippi River on a trip in 1865. The boat he traveled on was one for which James J. Hill was agent. Naturally, it devolved on Hill to show the visitors the sights thereabouts, and among these sights happened to be our friend Kitson, who, full of enthusiasm, offered to pilot the party across to the Red River. They accepted and ascended to Fort Garry. Agassiz, full of scientific enthusiasm, wrote out his theory about the prehistoric lake, and science, now the world over, calls the Red River Valley Lake Agassiz. With Louis Agassiz was his son Alexander, a fine young man with a pedagogic bent, headed for his father's place as curator of the museum at Harvard. From Winnipeg the party was supplied an Indian guide, who took them across to Lake Superior. Then it was that Alexander Agassiz saw the wonders of Lake Superior copper and Lake Superior iron. And Harvard lost a professor, but the world gained a multimillionaire. Louis Agassiz had no time to make money, but his son Alexander was not thus handicapped. The report of Agassiz on the mineral wealth of Lake Superior corroborated Mr. Hill's own opinions of this country, which he had traversed with dog sleds, Money was scarce, but he, even then, made a small investment in Lake Superior mineral lands, 
and has been increasing it practically ever since. A recent present to the stockholders of the Great Northern, of an iron tract worth many millions of dollars, had its germ in that memorable day when James J. Hill met the Agassiz party on the levee in St. Paul and unconsciously changed their route as planned. Mr. Hill's experience would seem to prove that life after all is a sequence, and the man who does great work has long been in training for it. There are two ways for a traveling man to make money. One is to sell the goods, and the other is to work the expense account. There are two ways to make money by managing a railroad. One is through service to the people along the line of the road. The other is through working the bondholders. It was the eventful year of 1876, before James J. Hill really got up steam. He was then 38 years old. He was agent for the St. Paul and Pacific, and in this capacity he had seen that the road was being run with the idea of making money by milking the bondholders. The line had been pushed just as long as the bondholders of Holland would put up the money. To keep things going, interest had been paid to the worthy Dutch out of the money they had supplied. Gradually, the phlegmatic ones grew wise, and the purse strings of the Netherlands were drawn tight. For hundreds of years, Holland had sought a quick northwest passage to India. Little did she know she was now warm on the trail. Little, also, did Jim Hill know. The equipment, engines and cars, was borrowed, so when the receiver was appointed, he found only the classic streak of rust and right-of-way. No doubt both of these would have been hypothecated, if it were possible. Mr. Hill knew the Northwest as no other man did, except, possibly, Norman Kitson. He had traversed the country from St. Paul to Winnipeg on foot, by ox-carts, on horseback, by dog-sledges. He had seen it in all seasons and under all conditions. He knew the Red River Valley would raise wheat, and he knew that the prosperity of old Louis Agassiz meant the prosperity of the railroad that ran between that rich valley and St. Anthony's Falls where the great flouring mills were situated, the center of the flower zone having been shifted from Rochester, New York, to Minneapolis, Minnesota. To gain possession of the railroad and run it so as to build up the country, and thus prosper as the farmers prospered, was his ambition. He was a farmer by prenatal tendency and by education, a commission man by chance, and a master of transportation by instinct. Every farmer should be interested in good roads, for his problem is quite as much to get his products to market as to raise them. Jim Hill focused on getting farm products to market. While he was a Canadian by birth, he had now become a citizen of the United States. His old friend, Commodore Kitson, was a Canadian by birth, and never got beyond taking out his first papers. The Winnipeg agent of the Hudson Bay Company was Donald Alexander Smith, a hearty Scotch burr of a man, with many strong and sturdy oatmeal virtues. He had gone with the Hudson Bay Company as a laborer, became a guide, a trader, and then an agent. Hill and Kitson laid before Smith a plan, very plain, very simple. Buy up the bonds of the St. Paul and Pacific from the Dutch bondholders, foreclose, and own the railroad. Now, Donald A. Smith's connection with the Hudson Bay Company gave him a standing in Montreal banking circles, and to be trusted by Montreal is to have the ear of London. Donald A. Smith went down to Montreal and laid the plan before George Stephan, manager of the Bank of Montreal. If the Bank of Montreal endorsed a financial scheme, it was a go. 
Only one thing seemed to lie in the way, the willingness of the bondholders to sell out at a figure which our four Canadians could pay. Mr. Hill was for going to Holland and interviewing the bondholders personally. Stephen, more astute in big finance, said, bring them over here. Hill could not fetch them. Kitson couldn't, and Donald A. Smith couldn't, because there was no dog-sled line to Amsterdam. The Bank of Montreal did the trick, and a committee of Dutchmen arrived to look over their Minnesota holdings with a view of selling out. Mr. Hill took them over the line, a dreary waste of slashings, then a wide expanse of prairie broken now and again by scrub oak and hazel groves, deep gullies here and there, swamps, sloughs, and ponds, with assets of brand, wild geese, ducks, and sandhill cranes. The road was in bad shape, the equipment worse. An inventory of the actual property was taken with the help of the Dutch committee. The visiting Hollanders made a report to the bondholders, advising sale of the bonds at an average of about 40% of their face value, which is what the inventory showed. Our Canadian friends secured an option which gave them time to turn. Farley, the receiver, was willing. The road was reorganized as the St. Paul, Minneapolis and Manitoba Railroad. George Stephan was president, Norman Kitson, first vice president, Donald A. Smith, second vice president, and James J. Hill, general manager. And on Mr. Hill fell the burden of turning a losing property into a prosperous and paying one. From the very day that he became manager, he breathed into the business the breath of life. He sent over to England and bought hundreds of young Hereford bulls and distributed them along the line of the road among the farmers. Jim Hill's bulls are pointed out now over 3,000 miles of range, and jokes on how Hill bulled the market are always in order. Clydesdale horses were sent out on low prices and long-time payments. Farm seeds, implements, and lumber were put within the reach of any man who really wanted to get on, and lo, the land prospered. The waste places were made green, and the desert blossomed like the rose. The financial blizzard of the year 1873 was, without doubt, an important factor in letting down the bars, so that James J. Hill could come to the front. The river valley at that time was not shipping a bushel of wheat. The settlers were just taking care of their own wants and were feeding the Lady of the Snows up north around Winnipeg. We now know that the snows of the Lady of the Snows are mostly mythical. She is supplying her own food, and we are looking toward her with envious eyes. In the year 1909, the two Dakotas and Minnesotas produced more than 200 million bushels of wheat, worth, say, a dollar a bushel. And when wheat is a dollar a bushel, the farmers are buying pianolas. The Jim Hill country east of the Rockies is producing easily more than $500 million a year in food products that are sent to the east for market. The first time I saw Mr. Hill was in 1880. He was surely a dynamo of nervous energy. His full beard was tinged with gray, his hair was worn long, and he looked like a successful ranchman with an Omar Khayyam bias. That he hasn't painted pictures like Sir William Van Horn and thus put that worthy to shame is to me a marvel. Hill has been an educator of men. He even supplied Donald A. Smith a few business thrills. Tomorrow night I intend to entertain the governor, one said Smith to Hill. Tomorrow night you will be on the way to Europe to borrow money for me. 
said Hill. And it was so. First and foremost, James J. Hill is a farmer. He thinks of himself as falling a plough, milking cows, salting steers, shoveling out ear corn for the pigs. He can lift his voice and call the cattle from a mile away, and does at times. He bought a section of Red River Railroad land from himself and put it in his wife's name. The land was swampy, covered with swale, and the settlers had all passed it up as worthless. Mr. Hill cut the swale, tiled the land, and grew a crop that put the farmers to shame. He then started a tile factory in the vicinity and sold it to the managers, two young fellows from the east, as soon as they proved that they had the mental phosphorus and the commercial jamaki. The agricultural schools have always interested Mr. Hill. That which brings a practical return and makes men self-supporting and self-reliant is his eternal hobby. Four years in college is to him too much. You can get what you want in a year, or not at all, he says. He has sent hundreds of farmers' boys to the agriculture colleges for short terms. Imagine what this means to boys who have been born on the farm and have never been off it. To get the stimulus of travel, lectures, books, and new sights and scenes. In this work, often the boys did not know who their benefactor was. The money was supplied by some man in the nearby town. That was all. These boys, inoculated at Mr. Hill's expense with the education microbe, have often been a civilizing leaven in new communities in the Dakotas, Montana, and Washington. In 1888, the St. Paul, Minneapolis, and Manitoba became a part of the Great Northern. Hill had reached out beyond the wheat country into the arid zone, which was found to be not nearly so arid as we thought. The Black Angus and the white-faced Herefords followed, and where once were only scattering droves of skinny pintos, now were to be seen shaggy-legged shire horses and dappled percherons. The bicycle had come, and also the trolley car, and Calamity Jake prophesied that horses would soon be valuable, only for feeding Frenchmen. But Jacob was wrong. Good horses steadily increased in value, and today, in spite of automobiles and airplanes, the prices of horses have aviated. Jim Hill's railroads last year hauled over 300,000 horses out of Montana to the eastern states. The clothes that a man wears, the house that he builds for his family, and the furnishings that he places therein are all an index of his character. Mr. Hill's mansion on Summit Avenue, St. Paul, was built to last a thousand years. The bronze girder that supports the staircase is strong enough to hold up a locomotive. The house is nearly 200 feet long, but looks proportionate, from the art gallery, with its fine pictures and pipe organ at one end, to its rich leather-finished dining room at the other. It is of brownstone, the real Fifth Avenue stuff. Fond du Lac stone is cheaper and perhaps just as good, but it has the objectionable light-colored spots. Nothing but the best will do for Hill, the tallest flagpole that can pass the curves of the mountains between Pujo Sound and St. Paul graces the yard. The kitchen is lined with glazed brick, so that a hose could be turned on the walls. The laundry room has immense drawers for indoor drying of clothes, no need to open a single window for ventilation, as air from above is forced inside over ice chambers in summer and over hot water pipes in winter. Mr. Hill is a rare judge of art and has the best collection of Barbizons in America. Anyone can get from his private secretary, J.J. Toomey, a card of admission. As early as 1881, Mr. Hill had in his modest home on 9th Street, St. Paul, 
several carros. Mr. Hill is fond of good horses, and has a hundred or so of them on his farm of three thousand acres, ten miles north of St. Paul. Some years ago, while president of the Great Northern Railway, he drove night and morning in summertime, to and from his farm to his office. He very often walks to his house on Summit Avenue, or takes a street car. He is thoroughly democratic, and may be seen almost any day walking from the Great Northern Railway office, engaged in conversation with one or more, and no matter how deeply engrossed or how important the subject in hand, he never fails to greet with a nod or a smile an acquaintance. He knows everybody and sees everything. Mr. Hill knows more about farming than any other man I ever met. He raises hogs and cattle, has taken prizes for fat cattle at the Chicago show, and knows more than anybody else today as to the food supply of the world. Yes, and of the coal and timber supply too. He has formed public opinion on these matters, and others, by his able contributions to various magazines. Seattle has erected a monument to James J. Hill, and St. Paul and Minneapolis will, I know, ere long be only too glad to do something in the same line, only greater. Just how any man will act under excitement is an unknown quantity. When the Omaha Railway General Offices in St. Paul took fire, at the first alarm, E.W. Winter, then general manager, ran for the stairway, emerging on the street. Then he bawled up to his clerk on the second floor excitedly, Charlie, bring down my hat. But his clerk, young Fuller, with more presence of mind, was then at the telephone sending in word to the fire department. Everybody got out safely, but the building was destroyed. One night about ten o'clock, the St. Paul, Minneapolis, and Manitoba Railway offices at St. Paul caught fire. The smoke penetrated the room where Mr. Hill with his secretary, Will Steffens, was doing some work after all others had departed. They had paid no attention to the alarm of fire, but the smell of smoke started them into action. Young Steffens hurriedly carried valued books and papers to the vault, while Mr. Hill, with the strength of a giant, grasped a heavy roll-top desk used by A. H. Boat, controller, pushed it to the wall, and threw it bodily out of the second-story window. The desk was shattered to fragments, and the hoodlums grabbed on to the contents. No harm was done to the railway office, save discoloring the edges of some documents. The next morning, when Bode, all unconscious of fire or accident, came to work, Edward Sawyer, the treasurer, said jokingly, Bode, you may consider yourself discharged, for your desk is in the street. When conductor Macmillan sold his farm in the valley for $10,000, he asked Mr. Hill what he should do with the money. Buy Northern Securities, was the answer. He did so and saw them jump one-third. Frank Moffat was Mr. Hill's secretary for some years. Frank now has charge of the PV estate. C.D. Bentley, now a prominent insurance man of St. Paul, a friend of Frank's, used to visit him in Mr. Hill's private office. Mr. Hill caught him there once and said, Young man, if I catch you here again, I'll throw you out of the window. Bentley thought he meant it, so he kept away in the future. He told the story once in my presence, when Mr. Hill was also present. Mr. Hill bought red lemonade for the bunch. A porter on his private car was foolish enough to ask him at Chicago once, at what hour the train returned. That porter had all day to look for another job, and Mr. Hill's secretary provided another porter at once. Mr. Hill cannot overlook incompetency or neglect. Colonel Clough engineered Northern Securities. M.D. Grover, attorney for the Great Northern Railway, said it would not work. Grover was the brightest attorney the road ever had. When the scheme failed, Grover never once said, 
I told you so. And Mr. Hill sent him a check for a thousand dollars, over and above his salary. Colonel Clough was employed at a salary of fifteen thousand dollars, some years before his real work began. He came from the Northern Pacific. Mr. Hill, when asked by a leading official of that road what he thought of the colonel, replied, Huh, he's a good man to follow contracts. Mr. Hill said of Alan Manville, then general manager of his road, He may make a man some day. Mr. Hill grew faster than any man about him. He distanced them all. S.S. Breed was treasurer of the old St. Paul and Pacific Railroad. His signature in a bold, fine hand adorned all the bonds of that road, held mostly by the Dutch. He was made auditor when the St. Paul, Minneapolis, and Manitoba Railway was formed. Breed had reached his point of greatest efficiency, but that did not suffice Mr. Hill, who said to him more than once, for Breed was an old-timer and well-liked, If you can't do the work, I'll have to get someone who can. Mr. Hill, however, neither fired the old man nor reduced his pay. Breed got work up to his death in the Great Northern Railway Office, but at the last he served as a guide for strangers. Breed was supplanted by Bode as controller, followed by C.H. Warren, and then by Farrington, and all three big boys. About 1889, Mr. Hill gave an address at a banquet in the Merchant's Hotel, St. Paul. With a large map of the United States and Canada on the wall, he took a huge pair of dividers, or compasses, and putting one leg of the dividers on the map at St. Paul, he swung the other leg out, southeast, 1,500 miles as the crow flies, into the ocean off the Carolina coast. Then with St. Paul still as a center, he swung the compasses around to the northwest, 1,500 miles. All this country, he said, is within the wheat belt. The leg of the compasses went beyond Edmonton and Alberta. Last year, this new Canadian country produced more than 100 million bushels of wheat, and this is only the beginning. Mr. Hill has always maintained that to call cotton king is a misnomer. Cotton never was king. Wheat is king, for food is more important than raiment. Wheat is the natural food of man. The civilization of ancient Greece was built upon the Nile Valley wheat. It is the one complete, perfect, vegetable food. It contains all the elements necessary to the making of the human body. The supply of wheat is the arterial blood that makes this world of ours do something. Without wheat, we would languish, go quickly to seed as China has. St. Paul and Minneapolis lie at the head of navigation on the Mississippi River, a little less than 2,000 miles by water from the Gulf, and about the same distance from Puget Sound tidewater by rail. These cities are in the middle of the wheat belt. To this point came Mr. Hill, a green country youth. Transportation was his theme, and transportation of wheat has been the foundation of his success. Wheat is of more importance to us than anything else, than gold or cotton or coal or timber or iron. Mr. Hill carries all these over his railroads. The Great Northern Railway, the Northern Pacific, and the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy. Over 20,000 miles of track are in the hollow of his hand. He directs, controls, even to minute details, this great transportation system. His 75th birthday was celebrated a year ago last September. Still, he fails not. He has given up the presidency of the Great Northern Railway, retaining, however, the title Chairman of the Board. But we all know that his hand is felt just the same in every part of the working of these miles of track. Rare ripes rot, but
But the man who comes into his own late in life has a sense of values and trains on. Mr. Hill does not ask for taffy on a stick, and while he prizes friendship, the hater praise of those for whose opinions he has little respect are to him as naught. No one need burn the social incense before him in a warm desire to reach his Wolitowski. He judges quickly, and his decisions are usually right and just. It isn't time yet to write his biography. Too many men are alive who have been moved, pushed, and gently jostled out of the way by him, as he forged to the front. Perspective is required in order to get rid of prejudice, but the work of James J. Hill is dedicated to time, and Cleo will eventually write his name high on her roster as a great modern prophet, a creator, a builder. Pericles built the city, but this man made an empire. Smiling farms, thriving schools, busy factories and happy homes sprang into being in the sunlight of prosperity which he made possible, and as yet the wealth of the hill country is practically untapped. So here endeth Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Businessmen, being volume 11 of the series, as written by Albert Hubbard, edited and arranged by Fred Bann, borders and initials by Roycroft Artists, and produced by the Roycrofters, at their shops, which are in East Aurora, Erie County, New York, 1922. End of section 23. End of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Businessmen, by Albert Hubbard.